You ever seen the TV show Hoarders? You ever see that? Each episode of Hoarders is a little mini documentary showing one person or, or one couple's real life struggle with what's called compulsive hoarding disorder. And this is a disorder that causes people to excessively accumulate and then refuse to part with like anything. And these poor people will be, the cameras go inside their homes and they'll be living in like literal tunnels and pathways through what anyone else would consider garbage. But if their family members or the authorities try to get them to get rid of some of that stuff, they can't. They can't do it. They, they go, I, I, no, I can't get rid of that. I need that. And the other person says, but it, that's a pile of Happy Meal boxes from the 1980s. Well, no, those are very important to me. I can't, I can't get rid of them. Now, if, you, if you've seen the show, you know the answer to this. But how well do you think it works to use threats, to use fear, to use fines to force people to clean up their houses. I mean, it can, they, they can do it through ordinances and the government can, can come in with the law and forcibly clean the stuff out of their houses. But as soon as the authorities leave, what starts to happen? The collection starts again. Only now they've lost relationships with the people who made them get rid of that stuff. The only ones on the show that are actually helped are ones through, through care, through counseling, begin to see that even though it doesn't feel like it, they begin to have a change of heart and a change of mind that begins to change their priorities to where they, they actually want to get rid of some of this stuff, even though there's a part of them like physically that wants to keep it. Their, their heart changes and they come to realize this stuff I've wanted for so long actually isn't good for me. So I actually, they begin to want to rid their, their house of this stuff that they've, they've held on to for so long. They can have new desires that can be, come, come to outweigh the desires they've always had. I find that a fairly decent illustration for the Christian life. For some of us, not all of us, some of you were raised in extremely moral and Christian homes and never strayed to. Some of you, like your mother, uh, gave birth and just dropped you on the stage right up here in church, right? Like, and you lived there your whole life, like Samuel. Um, for the rest of us, when we came to know Christ, when we decided to come to Christ, our house was a wreck. We had been collecting lots of stuff that wasn't good for us. 
And it's, it's really quite easy to have some bad ideas about what should be done with people like me who have a lot of stuff in their life that needs to go away when they become a Christian. It's really easy to feel like the tools of legalism is what must be wielded if we're going to get any results in a life like like mine. What we have to do for this person who says she's a Christian now but has a lot of stuff in her house, so to speak, that shouldn't be there. It's not good for her. It's not good for the church. If we're going to see any results, we have to use things like threats, ultimatums, fear, condemnation, shame. But it turns out that stuff doesn't get any better results in the church than it does on an episode of Hoarders. We can use that stuff to get some of the stuff quit, let go of temporarily. But hearts don't change from that stuff. They don't. They never have. And they never will. We've been working through the book of Galatians on Sunday mornings. And we've spent the last two weeks in a really important paragraph um, in chapter 2. And we're going to move on to chapter 3. But the main idea of what we've just studied before where we pick up this morning came two weeks ago for us in this verse right here. See if you can catch Paul's main idea. He writes to these Galatian Christians. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Any questions on what Paul's main idea is there? Everything we read about in chapter 3 points back to this main idea. Because Paul's going to start to talk about cleaning up our houses. How do we do that? Today in the first five verses of chapter 3, here's what Paul's going to say in a nutshell. He's, He's going to be teaching the Galatians how silly How foolish, how dare I say, stupid. You'll see why I say that in a minute. To have this idea about the Christian life. Yes, we we had to get into this Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ. We all agree with that. But if we're going to get any results getting our house cleaned up, getting our life cleaned up, that takes hard work. That takes my effort. I clean myself up through my effort. I get saved by faith in Jesus Christ. I get my house cleaned up by my effort. And Paul says, no way. That's foolish. That's what we want to talk about today. The only power that can save us eternally is faith in Jesus Christ. 
the only power that can save us from the sin that jams us up is faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit we get as a result. Let's read five verses, the first five verses from Galatians chapter 3. They read this way. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's our passage for this morning. As I said in the very first sermon over the book of Galatians, in Galatians, the book of Galatians is where we see Paul at his angriest And we definitely see that today. Paul begins by saying, you foolish Galatians. Now, Paul is affectionate toward these people he's writing to. He loves the Galatian Christians. He knows them. They're important to him. But he's really angry at where they are headed. And so his, his language is very direct, way more direct than it seems like in English because of the way we use the word foolish. Right? And foolishness. It's not that big of a deal. That's not, that's not kind of the idea behind his word, which is why a guy named J.B. Phillips, in his translation, the New Testament in modern English, he takes this, you foolish Galatians, and if you glance down at verse 3, where it says, how could you be so foolish, or something like that, he translates those two, those two verses this way. He begins this way for Paul. He says, my dear idiots... And in verse 3, how could you be so idiotic? That's closer to Paul's sentiment. It's why he asks them, who has bewitched you? Now, Paul, I don't, think, I don't think Paul thinks they have actually had a spell put on them. Rhetorically, here's what Paul is saying. I can't think of an explanation why you are falling for the the lines these false teachers are presenting in Galatia. These men who are saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but it's not enough. Here's what you must do if you want God to accept you. Paul's like, I couldn't have been clearer. Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Paul's not saying you guys saw Jesus hang on the cross because they didn't. They live in what is today Turkey, which was a long ways from Jerusalem. They probably had no idea a guy named Jesus got himself crucified. What Paul is saying is, I couldn't have been clearer the import of the cross it wouldn't have been more clear had you actually seen it. It's very similar to when Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, when I was there, I knew nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Paul didn't literally mean the only thing he knew in the whole wide world was that Jesus got crucified. It's just that's how central it was to what I was preaching there. And so Paul says, 
I just can't think of a good explanation of how you could be so stupid. Has someone put a spell on you? Why would you add something to the cross of Jesus Christ? In verse 2, Paul sounds a lot like one of us might sound in an argument. I bet many of us have done this very same rhetorical technique. Paul says, the only thing I want to learn from you is this. He says, just, just answer me one question. Have you ever said something like that in an argument? Here's what he's doing. It's just exactly what you do when you do this. Paul knows how they have to answer this question he's about to ask. He knows the answer they give will cut the legs out from under the legalists, the, the, the false teachers, the Judaizers who are deceiving them up in Galatia. And here's the question. Will you just tell me this? Did you receive the Spirit by doing the stuff those false teachers tell you you have to do to make God okay with you? Or did you receive the Spirit before those guys ever showed up in town when all you could do was believe what you heard? Which is it? Paul knows the answer. I want to pause for a second on receiving the Spirit here because uh, Paul just kind of throws that away. He, he has taught these people about the Holy Spirit. When someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ, a few things happen immediately concerning the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is talking about when Paul says they received the Holy Spirit. When a Holy Spirit believes on Jesus Christ, when I say believes on Jesus Christ, I don't mean just believes He was real, believes that He died on the cross. I mean you believe He died instead of you the death you should have deserved from God. But He took it in your place. And you trust that the only way God would ever accept you is simply because His wrath was poured out on Jesus and not you. And you trust in that. When you believe that, trust that message, receive the gift of eternal life that comes with that, here's what happens. Jesus said in John 3, immediately you are born again. You get a spiritual rebirth. You are born of the Spirit, Jesus said. Second, the rest of these are all Paul. Second, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't say you're baptized with the Holy Spirit because in different churches that can mean different things. But Paul says you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. What you are baptized into is the church, the body of Christ. When you came to believe in Jesus Christ, congratulations, you're a part of the church whether you ask to be or not. You get a new identity. You are a Christian, a Christ one. Third, at the moment you believe, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God himself, the Holy Spirit is God. When you trust in Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit, what a miracle this is, somehow comes to live inside of you like in your body. And the Holy Spirit seals you. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
And this is not a, a fur-bearing sea mammal seal, and it's not the seal like in a Ziploc bag. Um, this is a mark of ownership, like a wax, uh, molten wax, and someone's seal stamped in there, which is a mark of ownership. When you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God marks you as His. And no one has the authority to break that seal. All of that is what Paul was talking about when he said, I just want to know one question. Did you receive the Spirit? Did all that stuff happen to you when you started doing the stuff the false teachers up there, my opponents, told you you have to do? Or did you receive the Spirit just when I was there and all I did was tell you the gospel and you believed it? Paul says, did, did you receive the Spirit? Did God Himself move into your house, into your heart, into your body after you got yourself so cleaned up that you made your heart and your life a suitable place for God to live? Is that how this happened? Of course not. Of course not. Or did all that stuff happen when you, the moment you first believed? It is such a miracle that God, who is the Holy One, can live in someone like me, can live in someone like you. And whoever the, the least sinniest person is here, and there's someone here who has sinned less than the rest of us. I don't know who it is. If you think it's you, keep that to yourself. I will tell you that for sure. It's not a good way to make friends. But whoever that person is, are they really a suitable temple for the holy God of the universe? The answer is no. Imagine. Imagine the amount of arrogance it takes to think the reason God is okay with living inside of me and being a part of my life is because of, I'm doing so well in this life that he and I are, that my behavior makes us like colleagues. We're friends because of how good I'm doing. Do you hear how arrogant that is? Now, can we grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin? Absolutely, and we do. But he's not okay living inside of you because of how good you are doing at making yourself a suitable place for him. He's okay with living inside of you because you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the blood of Jesus covers your life and your heart so that what shows toward God, like what Paul said last week, it's no longer I that live, it's Jesus Christ who lives in me. The life, that the righteousness that shows toward God is the righteousness of His Son. And when God sees that, it's like, well, I can live there. It's always justification by faith that makes my life, my heart, a fit place to be the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's why justification is so necessary. It has to happen before God could live in us. And since the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens the moment we believe, before we clean anything up, that's how we know when I realize I have blown it. God, God is not threatening to move out because he moved in when the place was still a wreck. In verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, or could you be so idiotic, that although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by the flesh? Surely, you, you can't be foolish enough to think, you can't be foolish enough to believe that the cross of Jesus Christ the justification by faith is just what gets you started in this thing. But as soon as you get started, you've got to go back to your hard work and your self-discipline. And that's what you depend on to appear righteous before God. Paul says, how could that be? If faith is what allowed him to come live inside of you, why do you think your flesh is what you are depending upon to make, to keep the house clean, clean enough for him to feel comfortable living there. I want you to take note again of how Paul uses this word right here, flesh. This translation actually translates this word human effort, but it's just the word flesh. Sarx is the Greek word. You know what it means? Flesh. That's what it means. Now, Here's why I pointed this out last week. I pointed out again here. This word, sometimes some of our translations will take that word and translate it sin nature. And that's not what this word means. How do you know? Because look right here. Paul would never say that people are trying to get to the finish line of righteousness using their propensity to sin, using their sin nature. He would never say that. It's not what the flesh is. Flesh, when Paul uses it, is, uses it, either he's just talking about this carbon-based body, my flesh and blood, flesh and bones, or it is my propensity to, to want to get what I want. That's my flesh. And listen, sometimes when I work to get what I want, it's sinful things that I want. So my flesh can go in sinful directions. Absolutely. But sometimes what my flesh wants is to be better. Better than those people. Better than I used to be. My flesh wants a righteousness of its own. That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul says, are, are you so foolish to think... You began by the Spirit where you received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but somehow you're going to get to this finish line of the Christian life through your own human effort to be better than you used to be? That's what you've been doing your whole life. It doesn't work. 
We couldn't clean ourselves up before we met Jesus. We can't clean ourselves up after we meet Jesus. But are there some things in our lives that need to be cleaned up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go on. Verse 4. When Paul says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If, it, if indeed it was in vain. Paul's alluding to common experience between himself and the Galatians. We know from the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas were traveling around uh, Galatia, planting these churches, Paul and Barnabas suffered. They were treated pretty poorly by some people. Apparently the Galatians, when they accepted the gospel Paul and Barnabas brought, they also were treated poorly for having done so. And Paul just says, what happened to those people who were willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Salvation by faith alone, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. What happened? And Paul finishes this way. Does God then give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? Again, summarizing the same, the same argument. The power that got you into this thing is the same power that will finish this thing. Don't go back to using your flesh to make yourself righteous. And we're going to stop and take a little bit of a detour for just a minute about this verse. Because Paul says, look around at all the miracles that are happening, happening in your church. Did those miracles start... When you started doing the list of stuff that the Jewish legalists tell you you have to do, or did those miracles start simply when you believed what you heard? And the answer is when they believed. I want to talk about miracles in the church for just a second, though. Because there are, there are many churches who will teach you that the miracles Paul is talking about should still be happening in our church. That they do happen still in the church, and, and our church believes that those gifts are not given to Christians any longer, and there's biblical evidence for that position. That's what I want to show you, and then I want to tell you why this is still an important verse for us in our church. In the earliest days of Christianity, Christ dies right? He's buried. He rises again. He appears to lots of people. He tells the apostles, go into all the, the earth with this gospel, right? And they start doing that. And in the very earliest days in the book of Acts, and apparently in Galatia, when people were converted to Christ, miracles happened. Like Paul, Peter, John, they legit like healed people. We're told in the book of Acts, they were taking, Paul, taking Paul's handkerchief and touching people with it, and they would be healed. We're not going to start touching people with our tissues around here, okay? That's gross. I'd rather, just, I'd rather just have sore knees than be touched with your snot rag. Sorry. Uh, they spoke in tongues, which just means suddenly they were speaking, I'm speaking English, somebody, I would suddenly start to speak a different language that someone else could understand. That stuff really happened in the earliest days of the church. But I'm convinced even by the end of the New Testament, that stuff wasn't even happening back then. 
And I want to show you why I believe that. One reason why I believe that. Do you know that, that your New Testament is not written in chronological order? I mean, the Gospels do come first in the New Testament, the story of Jesus' life. Then the book of Acts is the, the, the history of the earliest days of the church. But after that, everything between the book of Acts and Revelation, everything in between there is a letter. And they're not written or collected in chronological order. They're first, the letters of Paul come first, and they're there by size. Romans is Paul's lengthiest letter. It comes first. The next lengthiest letters are first and second Corinthians. Then on down to Philemon is the smallest one. So it comes last. That's the order they're in there. Same thing with the general epistles. So all the letters that weren't written by Paul. Hebrews is the biggest, right? First, second, third John are the smallest. So that's the order that they are in. And if you actually put them in chronological order, the books of the Bible, you see something interesting with talking with, with the writings about miracles. So we can't be a thousand percent sure about all of these dates, but in general, Galatians, we know Galatians is the first letter Paul wrote, and he's talking about miracles there. The letters to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and the Romans are next. And then at that point, something special happened in Paul's life. You know what happened? He got thrown in the, in the clink. He went to prison in Rome, right there where that dark black line is. And from that moment, there are no more instances of either recorded miracles or the authors of Scripture talking to churches about what to do with miracles in their churches. There are no discussions of miracles in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and the first four chapters of Revelation are about churches, and, and there's no miracles in there either. So when Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, man, don't abandon this faith. Look at all the miracles around. You got those miracles when you believed. And then he, when he writes to the Corinthians, he literally, in the book of 1 Corinthians, tells this church how to handle all the miraculous stuff that's happening during their church services. Like how to tell if it's legit or if somebody's making it up. But by the time Paul goes to prison, by the way, even when he writes Romans, he, there, there's one little mention, one little nod to a miracle at the end. And there's no discussion what it means to be a Christian in Romans. No discussion of miracles for all intents and purposes. When Paul writes to his pastor friends, Titus, Timothy, he doesn't tell them why or how to handle the miracles they're going to be seeing in their churches. Why? You know why I think? Because there aren't any. Now, I want to say something very clearly here. Please do not leave here saying, well, Pastor Matt doesn't believe in miracles, because that's not true. I absolutely believe in miracles. I pray for miracles. When someone is your, when your family gets a terrible diagnosis, I will come sit with you and pray for a miracle and believe God is powerful enough to deliver one. But here's what I don't believe. 
I don't believe there's anyone walking the earth who's been gifted with the gift of healing other people when they want to. That's the gift of healing. That's what Paul had for a while. We could even dig into some of Paul's later writings and we can tell he would lo- there's friends of his he would love to heal and apparently even Paul can't. One last thing on that, the author of Hebrews later basically makes this same argument that we just read. The author, in, the author of Hebrews is writing to some people who are going to leave salvation by faith alone and Christ alone and go back to a trying to justify ourselves by works scenario. And the author of Hebrews doesn't say, look at all the miracles around you in your church. What he says is, do you remember when the apostles brought the message? Do you remember all those miracles? Why would we leave the faith that was started with miracles? So I think even by the time of the, uh, the Hebrews was written, those things were gone. But here's why this is still important for us. Because this is one way we know faith in Christ is where the miracle begins. It may not be miracles like we think of signs and wonders, but the greatest miracle that could ever happen to you is that you could be justified by the God of the universe. He could look at you and say, somehow you are righteous enough for me to accept you. That is a miracle. Do you know when that miracle happens? Read what Paul says here. Does the miracle happen when you get yourself good enough that God says, I think that person's clean enough that I could move in to their heart? Of course not. We could never get there. The miracle happens when we believe. Now, applying, in applying this passage to our lives, I want to show you again the illustrations I showed you last week, Brian Clark's discipleship theory examples, illustrations, okay? If they're red, it means stop. Don't think this way. The most common way to think about how I do the Christian life, I used to think I could maybe be good enough for God to be okay with me. Someone told me or I came to realize I can't do that. God's not going to be okay with me based on my behavior. So I came to the cross of Jesus Christ. But then we go right back to trying really hard through our works and our effort to try to get to righteousness comes through our efforts. And Pastor Brian says, stop thinking this way. The reason we should stop thinking this way is because our line will look more like this and because it really is what Paul talks about in this passage. If I think my works will make me righteous after I believe in Jesus, here's what you're doing. You began with the Spirit and you're trying to finish by the flesh. And Paul very clearly in this passage in multiple places says it won't work. I want to use our, uh, our hoarder's illustration to think through this. Your life was full of all this stuff that you knew was wrong. It's why you came to Christ. This illustration 
makes it seem like what Jesus did is he, he snapped his fingers and he cleaned up your house and he made you pristine and then he handed you a mop and a broom and a dust rag and said, now, you better keep this place cleaned up or I'm out of here. That's not the way it works, but that's what this feels like. Oh, I've blown it again. I'm such a loser. There's no way God can like me. But that is trying to get to righteousness through my works, and it won't work. The reality of how this is supposed to work is illustrated here. In the past, at some point, I realized I got stuff in my life that shouldn't be here. I am lost before the God of the universe. I heard the gospel. I accepted the truth that Jesus Christ was punished in my place. I placed my faith in him. I received his free gift of eternal life. And instantly, bammo, I was justified, which means I was righteous from that point on forever and ever and ever and ever because the righteousness I bear isn't mine. It's Jesus' righteousness. That's what justification by faith means. Forever, I cannot make Jesus' righteousness better. I can't make Jesus' righteousness worse. It just always is. And then, what do I do with all this junk in my house? How do I go about cleaning this place up. This word, you can't see it very well. This says truth right in there. When I believe, when I walk with the one who saved me and justified me, and when I believe that I can trust him, when I believe what he says is true, he can start to change my heart and my mind The more I walk with him, that stuff I always thought I was needing, I realize, you know, I I don't need that as badly as I thought. In fact, I don't want that stuff anymore. Even though there might still be a part of my body that thinks it does. Even though there can still be a wrestling match between those two things, the more I walk with him, the more my behavior will start to match what's already true about me, which is I am righteous in God's eyes. And then before long, I I can look back over my life and see, man, there's rooms in my house that look a lot better than they used to. And we don't even know this is even happening. It doesn't have to be white knuckle, just uh, 19 kinds of uh, people watching out for me and trying to catch me, do what's wrong so they can pounce on me. no. It can just be, I can't believe I used to like that. You've exp- many of us have experienced this. How many of you have done this? A song comes on the radio. It used to be one of your favorite songs. You start singing along and then you go, holy smokes, I can't believe I used to sing that. That song is awful. Like I didn't even know. Or this one. A movie comes on TV. Oh, I used to love this one. We did this one time. Hey, kids, come in and watch this. We got 20 minutes in and went, oh my goodness, we used to think this was entertainment. 
This is disgusting to me now. And it used to be a big part of my house. And I realized he's been cleaning stuff out of my house and I didn't even know. And it wasn't me trying super hard so I could be, but I'm just trying to walk with him and he's making me more like the one who saved me. And as long as we can look backwards, three months, three years, 30 years, and say, is this place a little cleaner than it was back then? As long as the answer is yes, then, the, then hallelujah. This thing is happening. If I get to the point point, I look back and I say, no, it's not. Well, then I need to get some help about what I'm actually believing. Because it's not the truth. The power of a changed life is the same power that saves a life. If you were lost, what saved you was the cross of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit opening your heart and your eyes to understand you need a Savior and that Jesus is it. Once you get that far, guess what power begins to change your life? The same power. God's power. You just need to walk with the one who has the power. And stop trying to make yourself good enough that the one with the power will accept you based on your goodness because it won't work. He'll accept you based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we, when we take back the power of making ourselves better, we're missing out on the power that actually works. Which is just walking with the one who saved us when our house was a nightmare. How's your house? How's your heart? Are there some things that need cleaned up? In some ways, I want to tell you, you can't do it. But I know someone who can. He's an excellent cleaner. And he works cheap. At least cheap on your end. You don't pay the bill. He already picked that up. Let's pray. Our Father, how many of us fall back into the lie that says, the flesh will bring righteousness. Thank you um, for sending a Savior, the righteous one, to be, to be destroyed as if he had sinned our sins. And thank you that for our justification that you make us look to yourself like we lived his life. Father, we, we want to live this thing. We want to do this thing. We want to walk with you. There's stuff in our lives, in our churches, and that needs cleaned up. But for the millionth time, we just want to say again, I can't do it. Because it's true. But you can. God, we needed you to rescue us. And we still need you to clean us up. You haven't handed us the mop in the bucket and left it, to, left it to us. You've just offered to walk with us while you clean 
through the power of your Holy Spirit that convicts us where we didn't feel conviction before, that's changing us from the inside out. God, we want that. We really do. And that's why we need you now more than as much as we ever have. Have your way in our houses and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up with us and let's finish our time together.